Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and I teach 91 dual-enrolled high school students. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I'm a full-time employee at the University of Kansas through the Center for STEM Learning. I am Camden Hazley Burton. I'm a high school biology and advanced placement biology teacher in Seattle, Washington, unassociated any institutes of higher learning. Professional development should not be restricted to your thing. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking Great Divide Barrel Age Yeti Imperial Stout. They're all gift wrapped like our present. Gold foil, you know it's fancy, right? So Camden, you are not in Studio Prime. Who are you and what are you doing on this show? I am a high school biology teacher teaching very similar things to when I live very near to you guys in Kansas. I'm now in Seattle. I've lived here uh, about over a little bit over two years now in Kansas. And as you both are familiar with, I taught some of the College Now courses, which were offered through the local community college. And in Seattle, or actually in the state of Washington, there's a similar program where kids actually go take that same course at the community college rather than a high school teacher being certified to teach it, which I thought was interesting and just a tweak from what I was familiar with. And then I started wondering as I saw kids enroll for it, is this actually the best thing for our kids who are trying to go to college? Is knocking out these like gen ed English 101 credits actually doing them a favor? And so that was the start of our conversation and very similarly, I just started to dive into research, looking to see if it actually was doing what it promised. It's called Running Start, and so I want to actually see to what are they running towards in this program. Dual enrollment programs are common across the country. There are differences between how they look in Washington, how they look in Kansas, and how they look elsewhere. But whatever their incarnation, AP, IB, dual enrollment, whatever, what benefits are there? to dual enrollment programs, and what benefits aren't really being borne out in the reality of their implementation? So if I think about what my high school students have told me when they enroll for this, because it's very different for me, if my student who's a junior tells me, Mr. HB, I'm going to go do Running Start, that means I don't get to see them really anymore, because now they're going to be at the community college rather than me being their teacher. So usually for them, that's they think this is a, so one, it's provided for them. The tuition is covered by the state for them to take three classes. And so that's less money that they ultimately see themselves having to, that's required for going to college in two years because they can do it as a junior and a senior. So I think for a lot of them, it's getting that college like gen ed requirements out of the way is usually how I see. Actually, I feel like that was the perception I got from students in Kansas and Washington. Uh, I agree. In my perceptive, the financial incentive is very strong, and though it plays out a little bit different here, though grants and scholarships do exist, students are typically responsible for paying their tuition, and so the benefit here is that they can earn this credit from the community college at a community college rate, which is about a third or a fourth price of the same credit at a university. So there's a time-saving factor, and there is a money-saving factor if they're considering a university. Well, and there's even telescoping benefits because I know when I taught AP, there was also dual enrollment opportunities. So a student could take AP biology from me, 
enroll for dual dual credit from the local community college, and then when they finish their work at the community college, transfer to the local state university where that credit transfers to be valid at the state university. So what ends up happening is they go from high school, transfer to community college, transfer to state college. The telescoping effect that you're referring to was actually kind of referenced in the uh, article, today's topic article, which is how much of a running start do dual enrollment programs provide students by uh, Cohen and Goldhaber? Uh, this article does something interesting. It uh, sort of presents a state of the union, if you will, on uh, the research supporting dual enrollment programs before their own paper. And then they do their analysis and compare it and, and present their their analysis uh, in contrast to the, the current state. And in the, the current state, there were some pretty positive sort of telescopic benefits for dual enrollment programs. These students are 8% more likely to get any degree, 7% more likely to get a bachelor's or a bachelor. They earn, earn higher grades. They persist through school at a higher rate. And I learned a new word, the sheepskin effect, meaning individuals that earn a degree get, make more money compared to individuals who have the same amount of education without the degree. So uh, their earning potential increases as they have been scaffolded to earning, even if not a four-year degree, then a two-year degree or certification. So before this research, there was very, very strong, pretty much overwhelmingly positive uh, conclusions regarding the dual education programs. And you qualified that. Camden, you actually brought this, this paper to my attention while we were working together this summer. Uh, some of that picture is getting disrupted a little bit during the course of this conversation that we're all having. What is this paper looking to challenge in our general perception? One, like you're saying, if we're supposed to, as like a high school, as like a value of why are students in high school, if one of those reasons is we are preparing them for higher learning, further advancement through like post-secondary, is allowing them to leave after two of those four years of high school like is that really acknowledging how we're trying to scaffold students through four years of high school or three years of high school experience because like if, if yeah what if you're thinking in like a truly like this is a well-designed high school then that wouldn't be the plan and of course it wouldn't work and they even show that not only does this lead to possibly students not even going to like a four-year university and getting their degree, it also might have a detrimental effect on them even graduating high school because they jumped too soon and then couldn't even get their high school credits. Well, one thing I'm thinking about regarding dropout rates of these kids is that they even mentioned that if a student's not well-prepared for a college course, then they might even find it harder to, because these courses are supposed to, in like, Fidelity, like you pass this course in college, great, you get your college credit, and we count that as credit at the high school. But there's no way to not pass the course in college but still get the high school credit. So in a sense, jumping too early to take a college-level course could hurt you in two ways. One, you don't get the college credit. Two, you don't get the high school credit, which could, they're saying, like, has shown that even, like, dropout rates... Um, tend to spike for some of these students. And I'm thinking from like a college or from a high school preparation standpoint, are, I'm just saying as high school teachers or informal high school educators, do we feel like we've prepared students after sophomore year, like, yes, go take this college course. 
yeah, I found that to be pretty uh, different from my experience that depending on which path students take, it is possible for them to graduate high school with an associate's degree. And that some students who go for the associates and fail end up getting no degree. They lose the high school diploma and they don't walk away with an associate's degree. And, and that puts them in a really tough position. Uh, they said that that was uh, more likely to happen for students in the bottom quintile. They end are more likely to drop out. So one of the things that these researchers suggested is that if this is going to be the way the program works, then admission to this program needs to be re-evaluated. That is a policy decision that can be made by both like the the university, I'm sorry, the community colleges can make that decision, and the participating school districts can make that decision. That we can reconsider participation in these programs so that we can avoid some of that greater cost. And I think that was a wise uh, suggestion that these authors conclu uh, concluded. I think you made a reference that's important, Camden. That it's really rare. I have zero examples in my experience of students having the opportunity to fail the collegiate side of this dual enrollment, but succeed at the high school side of this component, which means that there it is not scaffolding. They have just skipped the high school level. And you identified that this is exacerbated in the lowest quintile, which if you think back to some of the distribution of attempts and preparations across the SES spectrum, means that these attempts and failures are going to be correlated with students of need, which means they are incentivized to attempt this collegiate level course because it is financially incentivized. And that is a really persuasive factor for students of need. And they are more likely to be less prepared because of their background experience, which means they are more likely to fail this dual enrollment program which will then set them up for failure on their high school transcript, which then leads to an absence of a high school degree. So what we're doing is saying, you come here and you're getting a head start on your collegiate work, but what actually happens for the students who need it the most is they don't get any college credit, even though they have paid a sum of money for a collegiate enrollment, and they don't get the high school credit, which puts them in jeopardy of getting the high school diploma. Preach. On the flip side of this, when is it, when is it great? When is it good? Uh, they, uh, they concluded that student intent matters uh, and student planning matters. Uh, student, uh, those who stated that they will go to college, those that were certain that they were going to do, to do so, are more likely to do so with Running Start. And uh, those that did not have that intent, did not have that certainty, were not. So, uh, it's, I mean, if we're going to be pithy about it, uh, running start as described is good for kids who say they want to go to college, uh, but not for kids who are unsure or don't want to go to college. And that's true too, right? We're placed so, in some ways by placing a value on, oh, they only completed an associate degree. They even talk about the fact that some students said that was their intent is to complete an associate's degree. And they did find like a positive gain in them actually doing that by joining running start. Uh, yeah, the yeah, student yeah. intent mattered. Yeah. Uh, and as, as teachers, we want to empower student choices. And so Running Start is a good way to do that for kids who already have that self-defined goal. Uh, but if we say, this kid needs a lot of support, let's make sure he gets into this program, then we're doing more pushing that might not result in, that might be harmful, actually. For the, the flavor of the last couple of comments 
has hit my ears as though dual enrollment is conceptually an endeavor that allows students who are already succeeding to succeed more and more efficiently while being an obstacle or a stumbling point for students who are already struggling to achieve even foundational levels of academic achievement. Which I hear as increases achievement gap. Yes. Right. We, right. It is increasing that gap because they both enroll in college at a higher rate and drop out at a higher rate. And that's what's in this study. This study demonstrates that when you consider some additional sources of data that have been absent from a lot of the recent research, when you're considering private schools and some of the vocational schools that haven't been included in data sets to this point, that a lot of the gains that are being advertised are disappearing. But we still get back to the narrative of individual students who I am highly motivated and I have the background experience and it's just financially prohibitive for me to go to a four-year college immediately and this is a way for me to have greater access to collegiate credit those students are benefiting like that narrative is internally consistent so how do you reconcile that an individual student with sufficient preparation and motivation can be successful despite their uh, low SES starting point but at the systemic level that category of students is experiencing harm. The dual enrollment program that I'm experiencing in Kansas is different from the dual enrollment program you can't better familiar with in Washington, in that uh, I have 91 dual enrolled students, but I also have 119 total students enrolled in my course, which means I have students that are taking this collegiate level class not for college credit. And <clears throat> those students are getting an exposure to uh, college level objectives, uh, kind of getting an exposure to collegiate standards without the monetary investments that the otherwise other students are experiencing. And it's a little safer for them. They can get their high school credit. I suppose everyone can get credit for a D, but for those going to the junior college, that D is gonna be meaningless in, in terms of any transfer opportunities. So. I have students who are experiencing my course at a lower stakes level uh, where they have opportunity to re regain that credit in a high school setting. One thing I have when we take a step back to this idea of like perception and then like purpose, we know that the high schools and like their instructional practices and what we are preparing students for cannot doesn't always necessarily mesh with like institutes of higher learning. So while we may be more concerned with the student uh, being prepared to graduate high school, if that student jumps to college, they're just concerned with them passing this college class, like yes or no. And so I, I'm just wondering too, if what, what, do, what do high school students see? Do high school students perceive college differently? Uh, yeah, I think that's a really important question. I think there's two sides of the complexity to this coin. The first side is, as you mentioned, there's, so much variation in what students will experience from one classroom to the next. So what Mr. Woodruff's college biology course looks like is going to be really different than what they would experience on the JC3 campus, which is very different from what they get even in my classroom back when I was doing it. There's a lot of variation. And 
So the value that they obtain from those courses also has variations. Some of those are more challenging than the university level. Some of them are on level and some of them are lower. And the ability for the program to conduct QA, uh, quality assurance, is really different from program to program. So some of them are more successful than others. But the other side of that is there's some research on the AP side that's going to inform this question because I was having a conversation with a colleague two years ago who was asking about the utility of requiring attempt on the AP course. And she asked, is there value in having an underprepared student experience the AP course without the expectation of taking the AP exam, but experiencing the growth and the challenge and the difficulty of the course? And we were engaged in a, in a challenging and valuable debate on that topic. She prompted me to go and look for research on the topic, and there is, there is a study that's been conducted. Research on students taking AP courses indicates pretty clearly that students derive a benefit from the challenge and the struggle of the course when it is paired with the expectation and the experience of taking the AP exam, and that those gains disappeared when they did not take the exam. And that was it. That was the study. So if there are others that uh, refute that conclusion, I want them. But in my original search, it was really clear that challenge at college level courses when there's not the expectation of a validated and externally developed assessment tool led to students not being driven to achieve those collegiate level gains. So I would suggest that that probably generalizes at least to some fraction to our dual enrollment courses of if they're participating in the course, but they're not experiencing dual enrollment, and I suggest that it probably even go that there are not common assessments, that they're not seeing the same learning gains, that they perceive it to be a high school level course with a weird name. I'm glad that you said that there's a, you know, a portion of that effect is likely true because I don't want any of it to be true. And I don't like that it's true for AP. Mm. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, it makes me unhappy. Well, and so the thing about that, that, these are population level considerations. And while we want to believe that we have great agency over our classroom and we have non-zero efficacy impact, at a population level, there's so much variance, but policies have to be responsive to population dynamics. Yeah. So the fact that anybody is on a tail, or even if they perceive that they're on a tail, is irrelevant. Policies have to move the bulk forward. You have to move the central tendency. And I think we see that too with like, it, it ultimately it is an accountability measure for kids and teachers. If the test ultimately has these certain standards, you are expecting that we are moving students towards that. Um, otherwise it becomes greatly dependent on the teacher, which we also know is probably has the, one of the largest uh, effects on students and their outcomes is the teacher itself. But in absence of controlling that, I think it, it makes sense in my mind then that that's why that external accountability has to be there. This is sad because it suggests that the common wisdom that these programs 
help facilitate acculturation to college from individuals and, and demographics that don't have that acculturation to help prepare them is a fallacy and that it actually widens the achievement gap, which means that uh, there's, there's a little bit of, uh, of disillusion. The, yeah, people are, people are living in illusion uh, when saying that we are helping our at-needs community by supporting these programs. What do we do if the wisdom of the policy, which at the beginning of the show I said the policy wisdom is that we should have uh, better um, admissions uh, standards for these programs. And so then we're saying if you're not going to be held to the accountability standards, you can't be in the program because you're not going to get the gains. Then we continue to the we continue to gate. Um, we continue to gate participation in higher education. We just say, sorry, kids, you're not ready yet. You can't do it now. That's a problem. Well, and what's this matters because the original conceit of these programs is a student at an SES disadvantage, but with the investment and the motivation, should have access to opportunities to scaffold themselves into institutions of higher learning. And that's still valid. There are examples of students successfully engaging with these programs. So the problem is, how do we resolve the damage that seems to be happening based on this research at the system level so that we can still derive the benefits that are necessary and appropriate? 46% of students in Washington qualify for free and reduced lunch, and yet only 28% of those students who qualify for free and reduced lunch actually enroll in Ready Start. Go. Uh, may I, yeah. to clarify, 46% of all of the students in the state of Washington are of the socioeconomic status where they qualify for free and reduced lunch. Correct. And 20% of those, so i.e. about 10% of all students in Washington, are both for free and reduced lunch and enrolled in Running Start. Yes. Okay. And, well, so my, my wondering is like this program and its intent is to give people a running start. It is to uh, to serve people uh, to serve people who qualify for free and reduced lunch. To serve traditionally underserved populations, such as uh, students who are not performing as well in the at least the state of Washington. So that would be non-white, non-Asian American um, students. And even there, we see that only twelve point five percent, so half of the state's population is actually represented in the running start population. So students who are African-American, Latino, Native American, similar, uh, are actually in running start. So not only do we see, like we were talking about previously, the achievement gap of, yes, they might be more likely to graduate with their associates, but they're also more likely to drop out of high school. We're also not seeing those populations even of similar uh, representation in running start at least for our students concerning free and reduced lunch and non-white, non-Asian American. So I, is it even serving that role that it had? Is the purpose of dual enrollment programs to better serve and close the achievement gap? Because I don't accept that out of hand. What is the purpose of a dual enrollment program? Is it to be a launching pad for those students who are 
most capable of graduate work and research work, or is the purpose of it to make higher learning more accessible to the lowest quintiles of our student body? Because I don't accept that out of hand, everybody agrees on the answer to that question. Can, can you pick the side that says it increases students' uh, likelihood to enroll in a four-year university or to achieve an associate's degree? Because you could state that, or you could also state that students who are whose intent was to get an associate's degree or a higher degree did better when enrolling in Running Start. So like their like what they thought of their future plans mattered. Cause that would maybe help in like defining like what should be the purpose of dual enrollment in the beginning. There's these organizations, I don't think that they necessarily confer with each other with each other when they decide what their goals are. IB has a goal, AP has a goal, uh, JCCC dual enrollment has a goal. RS has a goal, uh, Running Start has a goal, I mean. And so they may overlap, they may compete, uh, and, and they don't really, they're not really planning this in regards to each other, which means uh, where does that responsibility lie to decide what these courses mean? And it goes back to one of my favorite sort of ethos statements that I love to operate from is that it belongs in the hands of the teacher. And so if uh, a teacher says, this course, this AP course that I'm teaching is going to be different than Michael Rouse because he's got this goal, and I know that they, we both call him AP, but my goal that I'm taking responsibility for, where my passions lie that I'm trying to do is going to be X, and his is Y, and he's going to do Y to the best of his damn ability, and if you want Y, you should take it from him, and I'm going to do X to the best of my ability, and if you want X, you should take it from me because there's no standardization amongst these different programs. And so if there's a teacher that says, my classroom program that I'm associated with is for uh, scaffolding uh, disadvantaged students to be successful in college, then I need to take responsibility for doing that in my classroom, regardless of what the courses cost. And if your goal is to sharpen the sharpest tool so that they are rock stars, then that's what, that's what you need to commit to in your classroom. So we can't just holistically say, this program is for that, and this program is for that. They don't do that themselves. We shouldn't do it to them. So I think the take-home message, if we are about shoulds, and we are, and we are talking amongst individual teachers, I don't have control over the entire state's outlook on dual enrollment programs. I have control over my classroom and doing the best I can by my students then my goal is to be transparent about my purpose to my students. That cannot be a secret to them. Because if I've got a student in my room who believes they just want the best experience possible so that they can go to college maybe, they need to not misunderstand that my goal is to prepare the top, the top, top students in my particular discipline. And vice versa is also true. There will be students who are deeply dissatisfied and not desirably challenged if they're wasting time in a classroom that is designed to be accessible to the broadest swath of students. So we have to be transparent with our students about the goal that we serve because there are several viable purposes for dual enrollment programs. So we declare our intent from day one. I am here for this reason. And then we do that thing well so that we don't leave students behind who need to come with us, and we go as far as is necessary to best serve the students in our rooms. So intent matters, and I am in full agreement of that. And if I can really think about where I've been when I've had those kids in my classroom, 
yes, I want, I like, I have my intent, I have my purpose for what I have for these kids, and that really matters. My concern is, is every room collectively thinking about every single student? Is Running Start or AP or IB going to capture and help push those, every single student, those of low SES, of uh, those of our traditionally underserved populations, do they have a home in our schools with the best teachers actually pushing them so that their intent actually matches and like is achieved? I want to go to a four-year university and I want to graduate. I want to be a researcher. That is what I'm really concerned with. And like, if as long as the intents overlap and we capture all of those kids, I am a happy teacher and then I get to go home and feel great. Now we do other stuff. Technology is everywhere. Technology is penetrating every level of education. How do we deal with the conflicting messages of being responsible and how much screen time we provide to our primary education level students? but also effectively use the increasingly complex communication technologies that are available to us. So the best source for these answers are the research base. We should always be looking for research as a, as a square one place to start and then uh, fill in the gaps with our professional judgment. So uh, there is an article that uh, addresses uh, mobile devices in, in the primary school classroom. And that article is exploring the use of educational technology in primary education teachers' perceptions of mobile technology learning impacts and, and applications use in the classroom, uh, written by Marta Gomez Domingo and Anthony Badia Gargante. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing them right, but I love saying their names. So, so much dopamine for that. That was really fun. And I, and I experienced that the first time I went through it as well. I, I think what's really, uh, what's really fun about this one is the fact that the perception that the technology has a positive impact is what is influencing learning. And it even goes on further to mention many of these applications that the primary school teachers are using have, do not either have an effect or do not have the desired effect as uh, potentially perceived or wanted by that teacher, but just the, that there is a positive effect be, or there's a perception that it is working, which leads to learning. Yeah, we should start by being clear that this research was conducted by an organization with a particular agenda, and the entirety of the data was collected in a self-reported nature. So our conversation really needs to focus on perception versus reality. Mm -hmm. Perception shapes reality, but beliefs shape perceptions. So there's some preconceived notion about the values that communications technologies can offer, and those are shaping the effectiveness of the, the deployment of communications technologies. So the, from the responses, they listed six clear, concrete ways that communications technologies, tablets, can be useful to students. They are portable. They are interactive. They are context sensitive, which means they can be responsive to what students are doing in that moment. 
they are connected, which means they can interface with other devices or technologies. They're individual, which means everybody has one and they can be responsive to the needs of the user. And they can interface with social media, which gives them access to a larger network. And that those six ways are how these technologies are being useful. There was one statement that they made in this, and I don't have, I didn't highlight it, so I don't have the quote right now. The, it was in the theoretical background section, and that section basically said that adoption of these new media facilitates knowledge sharing in classrooms, and if the software is, if it's perceived to be easy to use, it is also perceived to be useful. Furthermore, they stated that individuals, students, who contribute to discussions have an increased happiness, and that when their, when their contributions are seen as valuable by other students, they have increased happiness. And to me, that, is, that, that was the most poignant, relevant statement in the entire article for me. I was like, okay, if, if I'm gonna say, if I'm gonna try to find the kernel of greatest value in this, and try not to be just the bitter Luddite that I actually am, and just try to find out what is, what can I save? What, what, what can I just not be defiantly oppositional about? It is the idea, that it is that idea. And I fully understand that individuals get dopamine when they contribute, and they receive further dopamine when that contribution is considered valuable by others. And they are asserting that this technology, it should be used in the classroom because it facilitates uh, contributions and it facilitates discussion to de to present um, validation for those contributions. My problem is that I intrinsically do not believe that that is the only way that we can do this in the classroom, and that there are costs of technology that this article ignores. I yeah, I am all on board with like, I mean that like that. I'm happily eating that up. Learning is a social endeavor. And so something that the article mentions, too, is that um, technology has a way of fostering and has shown to foster autonomous learning, uh, learning on your own. And in those six uh, characteristics of what you look for in applications, some of that is the individuality. Can it respond to the needs of the learner? And so I'm thinking, too, along with Lawrence, what, what are the ways that if that is what learning should be, and there's also like a use of applications for learning on its own. What are these six then are responding to the fact that students are need to be learning or are interacting with each other? What is facilitating that? And so I think there needs to be uh, clarity in that because I've too often seen and right like this is the fear right that there's just a bunch of little third graders with a bunch of tablets stuck in their screen and nothing and there's not a peep in that classroom. And so that's my concern is that it's just being used to like facilitate a flipped classroom when I want to see it more in the social context. And so I do think interactivity and like this, I don't know if social media, that one is interesting to me, but like facilitating uh, group work, that's what I want to see. And I'm, yeah, it definitely has happened for centuries without it. So it needs to be revolutionary, I think, if we're going to be using those applications. I think it get back, gets back to comments that were made in episode four about technology solving problems. And in this context, it is most useful in making connections and validating their contributions, but that's not, that's not necessarily associated with their use of technology. 
And when you look at the survey responses for how they use this technology, the most frequently used apps were just content delivery mechanisms, which is associated with perceptions of utility. So even though technology is most effective in promoting student agency, when you look at frequencies of usage, the technologies that were most used are the ones that are just, here's information, plop. So you've got to be responsive as a teacher to say, this feels good to me and this is easy to use, but is it actually promoting my goals in developing student skills and developing student agency? And those are not well aligned. If we can, if we can foster that uh, community dopamine for sharing information and getting validation for our ideas socially, and I agree with that in a classroom, and I, though I am uncomfortable with using social media to do that, social media can do that. I see that it can. Uh, if that's what it should be doing, then if that's where our greatest gains are, uh, then if you're using it as a substitute information delivery system, you are still not leveraging the tool for what it is strong for. Which does not, which means you are uh, incurring the costs of using that tool without leveraging the benefits of using that tool. Which, as we said, we discussed that on this podcast. That is irresponsible. And when you look back at the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation for how we use technology with our students, it's clear in their recommendations that there's no one-size-fits-all policy. What we need to be doing is being clear about setting our boundaries and setting our purposes for how we use this equipment and how we use these tools. And in this setting, when we say technology is for promoting student agency, but what we do is technologies for delivering content, we are becoming unreliable feedback givers, which means students are going to be starting to making inferences from our behaviors instead of listening to our direction, and that removes us as a viable contributor to their development. Furthermore, we're just being irresponsible with tools. We are using tools inappropriately. Uh, so teacher perception then needs to be coupled with responsible tool use. Definitely. Uh, if we are we're not wanting to shun teachers away from using this tool the same way we wouldn't want to shun them away from other best practices that we know are best for facilitating content intervention or skill work or necessarily like working in a, like in a group. And so I, I think that's where that like that help and that training needs to be because we haven't, we don't have control over what is being developed as an application and too often those applications or are probably responding to the fact that most people are using them as content delivery and we know that that's not the only way that you can use technology and furthermore is probably not what we need to see more of in our technology if it's doing it better than we can do without the technology great but that is so true for everything that we use as a teacher and now for something completely different Today's non sequitur, would you rather accept a teaching schedule of 100% AP courses with no perks, and that means all of your sections are AP courses, none of them are weighted, none of them are dual enrollment, you, your students' exam scores don't matter and no colleges will see them, or would 100% of your course load be unique electives entirely of your own construction, so every course is a figment of your creation 
uh, subject to your capricious and arbitrary decision-making. Well, one of the arguments you made was that uh, AP is doing a great job, especially after a reformation uh, of targeting and improving scientific practice, pedagogy, in a classroom. And though I will personally accept that that has been a weakness of me in the past five years of my practice, uh, the AP program doesn't have a monopoly of good scientific practices in a classroom. And I can create an elective that also employs those. In fact, uh, we have evidence of, of a biotechnology program started at the East that has excellent modeling of authentic scientific practices that was a 100% from scratch created elective. So. I, I, know, I, I think that that argument is null, but that is not relevant. Advanced electives are even more flexible in doing that because the teacher, as the creator of the elective, uh, doesn't have an external responsibility to adhere to an external set of standards. So if a student comes into the classroom already with one degree or one area of expertise, we can dive into that further, or we could I, target things that, that students, those students are particularly weak upon and tailor it to them. As the autonomous, responsible um, uh, standard creator, as the, the creative creator of the course, uh, we can be responsive specifically to the needs of any of the students, whether the sharpest of the sharp or those that need more authentic, uh, concrete experiences in order to improve themselves. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the sole content creator can tailor themselves to the specific needs of the students wherever they are at. So one thing I'm thinking about with that too is that at the end of the day, if I don't, if it doesn't matter to me that all students are hitting a five, but rather that they are understanding that this is something that they are able of learning high rigorous or like these standards that are set at a college level, I think that is going to be very meaningful to the perceptions of students who also traditionally may struggle with the fact of seeing themselves as a college level student or someone who is capable of doing college level work. So in some sense, I do think that there could be an argument being made that the perception of doing, of actually being in the advanced placement courses and uh, take, like making moderate growth in that is beneficial to students moving forward who may not have been exposed to that in the future uh, similar or been exposed to that in other contexts similar to that there's like showing like a student who's taking AP calculus many uh, studies have shown like AP calculus tends to seem to have like if a student has reached AP calculus it tends to be correlated with a chance at getting a college degree now there's a lot of reasons that go into that uh, related to like how did they get into AP calculus in the first place but I do think that some of that is in the fact that just getting a student to take the advanced course and see themselves as an advanced learner uh, is a benefit in and of itself and something that I would want to be a part of. And that's why I would want my classes to have that uh, moniker, even if just the moniker is creating a different perception within the students. I didn't like any of that. How was the beer? It last it lacked a certain barrel taste. We had that taste. <laughs> oh man, it was and, uh, super whiskey. Like I experienced bourbon in every sip. This may be revealing too much about myself to our listeners, but on occasion I will pour a Guinness and then put a shot of whiskey in it, and it tastes like this. Mm -hmm. This like I go I, I 
I artificially try to recreate this, and they have done it authentically. I uh, I'm not gonna say that this is uh, this is gonna replace Dragon's Milk in my pantheon of delicious beers, but I have a new number two. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I have never had this before, and I I love this. Uh, it reminds me of Free State's Milk Stout. It doesn't. It's not an actual mm-hmm. milk stout. Um, it sort of has notes of that. It's pretty. It's pretty rich. They hit their notes. It's an imperial stout, and it's got whiskey in it. So if you want those two things, get at it. Yeah, it goes back to this philosophy I've been saying the entire podcast. Pick your priorities, commit yourself to them, and make it happen. And they delivered as advertised. This is an imperial stout. This has got whiskey overtones. You want it. This is it. Thanks for listening. Remember, join us on Facebook, Twitter, or check our website, Give us some comments and give us your own thoughts. But until then, discuss research. Struggle well. And intent matters.